0: The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Well, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to continue our work here in in Mark chapter 13. So would you join me in, in praying and asking God to bless our time of study together? Father, as we consider this day, As we consider your goodness and your kindness toward us, nothing can even compare to your power at work, that resurrection power that raised up from the dead our Lord Jesus, that all were amazed and not only resurrected, but then ascended into heaven. And that same power that raised up Jesus is the power that is at work within us. Father, we thank you for your love toward us. And we praise you for your resurrection power. We know that you have given us life. We know that you have called us to yourself, called us by your name, adopted us into your family, raised us up to new life, and that we have the hope of resurrection life even beyond this present life that we know. Father, we thank you for your promises in Scripture, that you who started a good work will be faithful to complete it. Father, we thank you that you work all things together for good for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And Father, we thank you that we can open your word together this morning to look into it, to study it, to examine it, to be stretched, to be grown. And I do pray that would take place this morning, that as we spend time in your word, we would be drawn to you even as we cannot be together right now as a church, Lord, that even more we would be drawing near to you, that we would find that you are our greatest joy and delight, that we would find all that we need in you. I pray that you would meet us this morning in a very special way, that your Holy Spirit would be leading and directing us in your word, that our minds would be sharp that our ears would be open, that you would keep us from distraction, that our hearts would be soft and able to receive your word like good seed on good soil, that it would begin to bear fruit in our lives. And so guide and direct this time according to your purposes and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, Mark chapter 13, and I'm going to begin by reading our passage as we did last week. This week it's Mark chapter 13, and we're going to take a look at verses 14 through 27. So I'll give everybody a moment to get turned there in their Bibles. Mark chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 14. Last week, we studied the first 13 verses. This week, we're going to do verses 14 through 27. All right, here it is. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand... as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise, and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory." And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, and that is God's word. So, starting off this morning, have you ever uh, spent time looking at a picture of Mount Hood? Uh, maybe not one close up where you're right at the base of the mountain, but one maybe further down the valley where you're where you're looking at Mount Hood, and and. If you have, if you've studied that picture, you understand that when you're looking at a a picture like that, whether it's a photograph or a painting of a picture, you can see in the distance rolling hills. You can see some hills even covered with trees in the foreground, and then the mountain, Mount Hood, which is just covered white with snow, jutting up directly behind those hills in the foreground and if you're just looking at that picture it almost looks like if you were standing on that hill with the green trees that you could just take one more step or you could just take a small little leap and then you could be standing on the mountain covered with snow but if you've spent any time uh skiing or or hiking or uh, uh, backpacking, biking around the hills, around hood, you know that that's not the case. You know that you can't just step from that tree-covered hill right onto the mountain, right? You, you understand if you've been there in real life that there are miles often between those two. And often there are even great valleys between those. Well, if you've noticed this, if you've experienced something like this, then you already understand something that's important to understand when it comes to interpreting prophecy in the Bible. And now as we're in Mark chapter 13, we're we're still working through this section of scripture that is prophetic Do you remember last week that that Jesus told his disciples as they were amazed, astonished at the beautiful buildings, the large stones, and Jesus said, there's not going to be one stone here left upon another that will not be thrown down. He was able to know that this was going to happen in the future. That That was a prophetic word. And the disciples had questions about this, understandably so, as as we emphasized last week. This was shocking news to them. And so Jesus begins, after hearing these questions from the disciples, begins to give some answers. Now, if you recall last week, we talked about verse 4 of Mark chapter 13, that it's two questions that the disciples had. And they asked, tell us, number one, when will these things be? That's the first question. And then two, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? So two questions, but they're both referring to the same thing about the destruction of the temple, about the stones being knocked down. As we worked through verse 13 last week Jesus was answering that first question when will these things be and if you recall he he didn't really give them uh, a date and time he didn't give them an answer as far as it's going to be on this precise day instead he said that false christ would come wars and rumors of wars would be heard, earthquakes, and famines, but he said, these are not the end. He said, these are only the beginning of birth pains. He drew their attention instead to faithful endurance, that even in these trials, even in these difficult times that were going to be coming for them, Jesus knew Difficult times will be coming for you. And he drew their attention to faithfully enduring. Uh, more about their character, more about not going astray, about drawing near to the Lord, about about guarding their hearts. And now this week Jesus is taking on the second question. And it's the second question that we're gonna see answered. In verses 14 through 23. In verses 14 through 23, Jesus is answering their second question. And that second question, again from from verse 4, is What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus works to to answer this question for his disciples. And as he does so, I want you to have this perspective. I want you to, I want us all to grow in this understanding that God is the God of history. God is the master of history. God is in control over history. He is the one who works things together according to his will he is the one who works things together for the good of those who love him and are called by him. And so as we work through these verses, 14 through, through 23, uh, but even verses 24 through 27, or maybe I'd say even especially verses 24 through 27, we're going to see God as the master of history, working things out according to his will and his purposes for his glory and for our good. All right, so let's get into it. In verse 14, Jesus begins, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, last week, Remember, the answer that Jesus provided focused more on hearing, that many will come saying that they are the Christ. When the disciples hear about wars, when they hear about rumors of wars, so it was more about listening, it was more about hearing. But now, Jesus says in verse 14, but when, when you see the abomination of desolation... So this week is more about sight. As he's answering the second question, it's it's more about seeing. Because they asked about the sign. What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? So a sign is something that we, we see with our eyes. And so Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. This is is something that the prophet Daniel speaks about, the abomination of desolation. He he writes about it in a few different passages, first in Daniel chapter 9, and I'll read that for you. Daniel writes that he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. That's Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27. And then Daniel again in verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 31. He uses the same phrasing. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress And shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. So this abomination that makes desolate. This is something that was horrendous. This is something that for for the Jews to witness, for the Jews to experience in their life, it would have been something we could say is abominable. It is something so terrible. It is something that desecrates the temple. And Jesus now says in Mark chapter 13 and verse 14, when you see... The abomination of desolation, standing where he ought not to be. Now, this is something that the Jews were familiar with. The abomination of desolation, it's something that they had even experienced in their history. Now, we have a a book called the uh, Maccabees, 1st Maccabees. It's not inspired scripture, it's not not part of our Bibles, but it is helpful as it records some Jewish history. And we read about a man named Antiochus Epiphanes in 1 Maccabees, and in 168-167 BC, that he set up what is called a desolating sacrilege on the altar of burnt offering. So this Antiochus Epiphanes, he goes in to the temple, takes over the burnt offering, sets up an altar to Zeus, and then even there he offered a sacrifice of swine, of pigs. Something? Can you think of anything more abominable for Jews where swine was unclean? Something that they weren't even permitted to eat, let alone offer that? an unclean animal, in sacrifice on their altar of burnt offering? This was understood by the Jews, and rightly so, an abomination of desolation. And so, for the Jews, they had an understanding of the abomination of desolation. They could look back to Daniel. They They were familiar with the writings of Daniel and the abomination that makes desolate, And they could look back in their recent history to the time of the Maccabees and the Maccabean revolt and Antiochus Epiphanes, and they would have understood this. It would have been part of an annual celebration for them as well, the Feast of Lights, Festival of Lights. And so this was something that that they were familiar with. It's something that they knew. But now Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation. Wasn't that something in our past? Isn't that something that Daniel prophesied, but then happened in 168 BC? But yet Jesus is talking about another, a further, a second abomination of desolation. It's something that For these Jews, for these disciples, listening to the answer of Jesus, it was still in their future. This is still a prophetic word. So then what would the disciples be looking for if Antiochus Epiphanes committed the abomination of desolation? Something equally as heinous? something equally as detestable taking place in the temple. It's interesting, depending on which translation of the Bible you, you read, uh, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be. Now, now some Bible translations say where it ought not to be, but it's, it's masculine. And so the English Standard Version rightly so understands this as a, as a he Not as a thing, not as an it, but as a person where he ought not to be. Many commentators believe that this was fulfilled in 70 AD when Titus, uh, the Roman general, came in, inhabits Jerusalem, and then along with this, this army that comes in, they would have set up their standards... And they would have set up their symbols of idolatry uh, before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. And so many look at that and think, well, that was the abomination of desolation. And it very well could be. I think that is is a very strong candidate for the abomination of desolation. It would have taken place there at the temple. It would have defiled the temple mount. There would have been symbols of idolatry all around as the Romans took over control. And then Jerusalem and the Temple Mount would have also been destroyed. But there was something that took place even a couple years prior to that that doesn't get quite as much attention, but I think equally so could have been the abomination of desolation. A couple years earlier, Jewish zealots overtook the Temple Mount. They took over control from their fellow Jews, these Jewish zealots. That were gonna, they were going to fight for control of Jerusalem, fight for control of the Temple Mount. And they even took a man and appointed him as high priest. His name was Fani. P-H-A-N-N-I, Fawny. And so they take this man who wasn't of a high priestly lineage, had no right to be in the position of high priest, but they saw him as someone that they could use as as a puppet, really, and they installed him into the office of high priest. And he began even making uh, sacrifices. You see, by the time Titus had surrounded Jerusalem and began to inhabit Jerusalem. Jesus' further instruction about when you see the abomination of desolation, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. I think by the time that Titus and the Roman army had already taken up Jerusalem, taken over Jerusalem, it would have been too late to flee. If you would have made an attempt to flee, you would have been cut down. You would have been wiped out. But a couple years earlier, when the Jewish zealots took over the Temple Mount, when they installed Fani as high priest, when he began making these abominable sacrifices, these abominations of of desolation, doing things that he was not qualified to do, that would have been a signal for the Jewish Christians then, it's time to go. Abomination of desolation taking place. We need to go while we still can. Now, I, I, I think it's funny, but I don't know that we have to say it was exactly this or it was exactly that. There are, are, uh, there are other uh, ideas as well that it may have been Caligula uh, of Rome who committed this abomination of desolation. But I think what's important for us to understand here is that Jesus is telling his disciples about what was to come. Jesus knew what was to come, and his work, by giving them this noticeable sign, when you see the abomination of desolation, it's time to get out. It's time to get out of Jerusalem. It's time to flee from Judea. In fact, the way that Jesus put this is really quite striking. Those who are in Judea are to flee to the mountains. Those who are on the housetop are not even to go down to enter their house to take anything out. Not even a a ready bag, a go bag. Just get down, go. Don't look back. If you're working out in a field... Don't return to the edge of the field to get your lunchbox and your coat that you left there on the side of the field that morning. No, when it's time to go, you go, and you go immediately. For women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing in those days, Jesus says, whoa, alas, whoa. These things that are supposed to be such seasons of joy and delight pregnancy and 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 uh nursing these things of great care that that are honored seasons of life jesus says no in that time because it's going to be so terrible whoa because you're gonna be slowed down by being pregnant or by nursing infants in the same way pray that it may not happen in winter because In winter, travel would be more difficult. Jesus was giving them direction that when that time came, they needed to make haste. They needed to flee. They needed to leave immediately. Jesus knew what it was that was going to come. And he was speaking these words to them as a shepherd, he was speaking these words to them as one who cared for them, that he wanted to preserve them, that he wanted to protect them, that he was speaking and working for the good of his people. So flee in haste. Historians tell us that when the Romans came and captured Jerusalem and ultimately destroyed that city, that million Jews were destroyed. But they say that Jewish Christians were not in that number, largely because they obeyed the words that Jesus had given to them. That when you see the abomination of desolation, this noticeable sign, this thing that you will be able to recognize, when it happens, you need to make haste and you need to leave immediately. So even though so many Jews lost their lives, the Jewish Christians were largely spared. So Jesus cares for his sheep. Jesus gives them warning. And I want you to see that in this, there's such great love that's expressed. Sometimes we get all wrapped up in eschatology. Eschatology... Um, One of my kids asked me last week, what's eschatology? Well, theology. Theology is the study of God, theos. Uh, We talk about uh, soteriology. That's the study of salvation. That's how salvation happens. Hamartiology is the study of sin. We have all of these different ologies uh, that we can study, the study of this, the study of that. And so eschatology, that's the study of the end things, the eschatos, the end times. And we can get so caught up in eschatology with different particulars, different different views, that sometimes we lose a little bit of perspective as well. And what I want us to see in this right now, this morning, is the great love that is expressed by Jesus as he is speaking about things to come for these disciples, for the Jewish Christians in and around Jerusalem at the time of 70 AD, that even as he himself is preparing for the cross, it's just days away. It's only a short time away as he is preparing for the cross that he takes the time to instruct his disciples, that he takes the time to inform his disciples, to give them some comfort, to give them some hope, to give them confidence that this is what is going to happen. But you know beforehand, and so you're prepared. As Jesus continues to answer this question of the disciples, what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. He, he continues in verse 19, and he says, For in those days, this is why they need to, to flee. This is why they need to get out so quickly, to go so rapidly. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now, and never will be. Wow, those words that Jesus uses when when all of this is taking place, when the sign has appeared, when the destruction of the temple has begun, those days are going to be incredibly difficult. Mark, he speaks about he records the words of Jesus telling us about unprecedented tribulation such as the world had not seen before those days. And and Jesus says there aren't going to be days like this in the future. Never will be. These days are going to be so difficult. Verse 20, And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now here again, we see the love of God expressed toward us. That he knows those who are his. The Lord cares for, the Lord saves his elect, even even through tribulation. Isn't this really the pattern that we see throughout scripture? We don't read about the patriarchs of Israel uh, living easy or difficulty-free lives. We read often of them going through seasons of intense difficulty, but God even working in those times of difficulty to prepare them for something greater. Even Moses, who, who had all of the riches of Egypt before him, yet instead God drove him out into the wilderness Forty years he was there and he was being prepared to be the shepherd of Israel to lead them out of Egypt. And then even that leading out of Egypt, it wasn't just a golden road that they walked. It wasn't a a, a car, air conditioned vehicle that they hopped into and, and just zoomed on into Israel and, and inhabited great palaces. No, that even coming out of Egypt was difficult. But God was preparing his people for what was ahead of them. David, we don't read about him always skirting hardship or skirting danger and avoiding it. No, we read about God protecting him. We read about God working through danger and difficulty. Paul and the other apostles, they didn't escape trials Paul, you know, he has the laundry list that he gives of everything that he had suffered for the sake of Christ. We read about God bringing his people through and working on their behalf in the midst of tribulation and trial. And that's what Jesus is saying here as well, that his elect would be in a time of intense tribulation, but that He would shorten the days for their sake. Verse twenty. Whom He chose, He shortened the days. Now we shouldn't be surprised. That's what Peter tells us. That's what Peter writes for us. We shouldn't be surprised about times of trial. In one, uh, one Peter chapter four. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What? Christians, we don't go through trial. We don't go through difficulty. This is this isn't right. No, Peter says, don't be surprised. It's not like something strange was happening to you. This is something that for the Christians you can even expect and he goes on even further not only don't be surprised but rejoice rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed if you are insulted for the name of Christ you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of god rests upon you And the sinner. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. God brings his people through trial, through tribulation. But Jesus says, verse 23, But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. There are times of intense suffering. There are times of tribulation and even more claims of false Christs, false prophets arising and performing signs and wonders to, to lead astray, he says, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Don't be surprised at fiery fiery trial. Rest in God's control. Take confidence in the God that you serve. Find hope in his plan. And Jesus gives them instruction here in those times with all of these false claims of the Messiah, all of these false claims of the prophets, all of these signs and wonders that would speak falsely, Be on guard. Be on guard. Now, this is what we saw even earlier in this chapter. In verses 5 and verses 9, Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. In verse 9, we read, But be on your guard. Now, it's hidden a little bit more in our English, but in the Greek, that's the same thing coming up. Verse 23, but be on guard. Verse 9, but be on guard. And verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. That is, be on guard that no one leads you astray. And so we could look at verses 5 through 23 really as one section, as one section in Scripture answering these two questions. And I would say that this be on guard or see that no one leads you astray, that same Greek word used in verse 5 and verse 23 really kind of form the bookends for this passage of Scripture, verses 5 through 23. And then in verse 24, this is where Jesus is taking us on On this hike through the mountains, right? We're looking at the picture of Mount Hood. We see all of the the forested hills before us. And then it seems like it's looking at the picture like it's only one step. And then we're on the snow-capped mountain. But we understand that sometimes there are great valleys between those peaks. That sometimes miles, there's great space at times between those peaks from one to the other. And from verses 23 to 24, there's this space of time that exists. Verse 24, Jesus begins now to speak about a great day of victory. Look with me, if you will, at verse 24. It says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. The disciples had two questions. When will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished. And in verses 5 through 23, Jesus answers those questions. The first question he answers up through verse 13. Verses 14 through 23, he's answering the second question about the sign. When you see the abomination of desolation, that's the sign. Now in verse 24, he's no longer answering the question of the disciples. He's giving them what they need to know. He's even going beyond their question and talking about the day of his return. Now, as we read it, as we read it here, we could say, well, it seems like it's just one step to the next. Like we're going step by step and that these things just happen within a very short time frame. But this is where, again, we're looking at the picture of Mount Hood. We go from peak to peak, and and sometimes we don't recognize just looking at that picture or in reading that passage that there can actually exist spans of time between the fulfillment of one thing to the next thing. So in verse 24, we have this time that has passed, and he says, In those days after that tribulation. I believe that tribulation he's speaking of is still the tribulation that would come around 70 AD with the Romans coming in, destroying Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. But in those days after that tribulation. So I need you to stick with me here. Jesus has just been speaking to the disciples about events that will involve them directly. Events that would involve them directly. In in 70 AD, in verses 14 and 23, if you look there, he says, when you see the abomination of desolation. And then in verse 23, be on guard, I have told you, All things beforehand. He's speaking directly to the disciples. These are things that you need to know. These are things that you need to be aware of. These are things that are going to involve you directly. Now, in verses 24 and 27, that drops off. He's no longer saying you. But instead, verse 26, And then they... We'll see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. There's a span of time here that takes place. Verse 24 also begins with this different word, but in those days. We could translate it uh, differently or say, on the other hand, or however, in those days. So this is a bigger transition that we see in verse 24 then we see in verse 14. Then we see in verse 9. I know as you look at your Bibles and you see the English word but, B-U-T, but, be on your guard, verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation, verse 24 is actually a different word. And and it it communicates more disconnect from verse 23 to 24. So in those days... After that tribulation would take place in Jerusalem, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, these cosmic events would take place. And Jesus is no longer answering the questions from his disciples in verse 4, but he's speaking about things that are to come He's speaking to give them comfort, to give them hope, to give them confidence that even as their world very soon would be rocked by the trial and the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus, even looking beyond all of those events, even beyond the ascension of Jesus, Jesus is looking back to his return. And so Mark, as he records these words of Jesus, this prophetic language that's being used to speak about the events that would take place around the return of Jesus. That's similar, very much similar to the language that Joel uses in Joel chapter 2. This is what what Peter uh, cites and quotes on the day of Pentecost. Joel chapter 2, verses 30 through 32, I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And that shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 26 They will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Even days before his crucifixion, Jesus is able to look beyond his death and speak about his triumphant return. He came the first time Jesus did as a suffering servant. He came in meekness and humility but he will come again as conquering king. This is what we have recorded for us by John in the book of Revelation chapter 19. I want to read this passage to us. Revelation 19, beginning in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse Return of Jesus coming as conquering king. And this is what Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in verses 24 through 27. The return of the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. This is what Paul writes in First Thessalonians chapter 4. That the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In Acts chapter 1, as Jesus gave instruction to his disciples, telling them that, They would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit. It would come upon them and it would empower them to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then in verse 9, and when he had said these things, as they were looking up, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And there are the disciples marveling. Looking up into the sky, Jesus, after he was crucified, after he was buried, he was raised up by the power of God. And they had these 40 days with him, receiving instruction from him. And now at the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascends into heaven. And they're standing there, gazing, marveling at what just took place. Acts chapter 1, verse 11, an angel speaks and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. They had watched him ascend up into the clouds and there would be a day coming when Jesus would come back in triumph, in victory, as conquering king. Jesus is giving hope and comfort, speaking words of confidence to his disciples. Verse 27, And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Jesus has a plan for those who are his, and this is a guaranteed hope for every person that has come to trust in Christ as Savior, that Jesus has this plan in place, and he will accomplish it. He will bring it to its completion. Jesus refers to them as his elect. Throughout our passage, we've, we've been reading about the elect. Back in verse 20, we read about God shortening the days of tribulation around Jerusalem's destruction. Why? For the sake of his elect whom he chose. We read in verse 22 that false Christs and false prophets would perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But they won't be led astray because they are the elect of God. God has chosen them. God has redeemed them. God has fitted them for eternity with him. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to send out his angels to all four corners of the earth, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven, to gather up all of his saints together that we will forever be with the Lord. I want to end this morning with the words of Paul in Romans chapter eight. I'm going to read that for you. Romans chapter eight from verses twenty-eight through thirty-nine. We know that for those who love God, all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your word, and the promises contained in it. And we thank you for the words of Jesus spoken to his disciples to give them confidence in your plan, to give them comfort in times of difficulty, to give them hope that extends even beyond this life. And I thank you that Mark recorded all of these words, that they were saved, written down, and read to other believers throughout the ages, that we can learn from the words of Jesus to his disciples, that we can learn also to grow in our trust of you, that our confidence would be more certain in the plans that you have, in the ways that you are working, that we would look to you for comfort, even as we go through times of difficulty, that we would find comfort, even as it was shared earlier, comfort in in your word, that you have given us such a wonderful treasure in your word, because in it you reveal yourself to us. And Father, we thank you for the hope that we have. We thank you for the hope that goes beyond this life. That we know the end of this life is really not the end, but it is only the beginning of eternity with you. And we thank you that eternal life has even started now. That we have this eternal life because of what Jesus has accomplished for us. On this day, likely an Easter Sunday, a resurrection celebration like we may never have again in our lifetimes, where we are all separated in our homes, yet, Lord, your power remains. Your promises hold true. And we look forward to that power as Jesus comes and returns for his beloved, his elect, in great power and glory. Father, continue to draw us near to you. Continue to strengthen us day by day by your spirit, leading and guiding and directing us for our good and ultimately For your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.